You're listening to The Outspoken Bible, a podcast from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of The Outspoken Bible. I'm Fiona Stewart. As usual, I'm joined by Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Hello. Hello there. Hi. Hi, yeah. Good to see you both. Uh, today we're going to get stuck into our new series, Rebuilding the Rubble, Reminders of Return, Recovery and Reimagination. And we're going to be discussing Ezra chapters 1 to 6. But before we do that, I'm once again going to spring a question on you. Uh, I'd like to ask you both a question about hindsight and the sovereignty of God, because I think that's going to come up as we talk later on. Here's the question. What events, global or personal, have shaped your life in a way that you did not foresee? at the time what events global or personal have shaped your life in a way that you did not foresee at the time i'll give you a moment to think about it and uh, whilst you're thinking i'd just like to remind people that we're really keen to hear from you this season so do let us know what you're thinking about tell us what you're reading let us know what you had for your breakfast i don't know anything at all really Um, and you can do that by getting in touch uh, through email on outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org or via the sbs social channels we would love to hear from you. Right, you've had time to think about it. What are your life-changing events? Actually, when you first said that, Fiona, I thought, I can't think of anything. But then just within a couple of minutes there, as you were talking, I thought, oh, no, no there is quite a lot. I think I'll go for two. And and, and the, there, are, there are many other ones. Uh, world, and the main, in some ways, they're both personal, but they are one of them is connected to world events. Um, I went to Alan and my, Alan, my husband and I went to Berlin for our twenty fifth wedding anniversary for a holiday. It was a lovely holiday, but being in Berlin, I think, shifted me to a different place, maybe politically, and I suppose political is affects you personally as well. But just spending time in that city, seeing the history from the Second World War and the Cold War history through various experiences. I think it made me much more aware, significantly aware of how insidious changes from government can actually alter and, and, and in a very severe ways the whole shift of a nation. So, so that was one. Mm. And um, my son, Andrew, going to Bolivia, I think when he went, I, I just, Andrew's, Andrew's going to Bolivia, I'm going to be sad, I'll miss him. But him being there has made me far more internationally aware, much more aware of South America, um, the different nations there, the relations between those nations, the political situation of Bolivia. So, and actually that's true for many people if somebody in your family goes and lives somewhere else. And I'm a bit of ashamed really that that had to be that personal to make me more aware of things, but it is, and I, I now seek out global news much more than I would have done rather than just absorbing what mm-hmm. naturally comes my way. So that's my two, I think. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Neil? I think I'd say the what are sometimes called the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which I first became aware of as a child in primary school when our teacher told us that Lord Mountbatten had been killed. Um, and then seeing pictures of the Brighton bomb. In the late 90s, early 2000s, those became part of my life as I lived in Belfast. I remember some of the moments of fear when... Um, at one point, I had to get home from Belfast uh, Central Station when uh, the third Drumcree riots were kicking off. Um, and 
also specifically I ran a youth club of Catholic guys who came from North Belfast and often used to give them a lift home at night and for a laugh they would make me drive through Protestant areas without me knowing it with their Celtic tops on and those were terrifying experiences Um, but yeah so they were shaped by the troubles in Northern Ireland. Well, very good. I had thought about 9-11. I've been thinking mm. quite a lot about 9-11 because obviously we've just um, seen the 20th anniversary of all of that. And, and with the, the concomitant, is that the right word, events that we've yeah, seen recently in use. Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it is really giving me cause to, to think. Maybe it's the age I'm at as well. You begin mm. to realise 20 years is not that long a time. Um, but but I have been very aware of how yeah my, my life and everybody around me, um, our lives have been shaped very much by what happened um with those events i was thinking about the brexit rem- referendum mm. as well i don't want to get too political about it but i think we're seeing some of the consequences of that in in the current days so we're about to move on to talk about ezra one to six today neil you were gonna i think throw in a podcast question as two well. or three podcast just housekeeping moments if we can first of all you promised you made a <laughs> you made a solemn vow to look at the levitical <laughs> law codes at the end of season two i was listening to it the other day did you do that well, I have to say, I thought about it the other day because when I was preparing for this and reading Ezra, Ezra 1 to 6, I started thinking again about the Levitical line. <laughs> I thought, oh, blame me, I've not gone and done that. So, no, I haven't yet. You can hold me accountable next <laughs> time. Just listening to that. So the I next time this goes on. <laughs> <laughs> I had a nice, I had nice moment in the car. I was listening to the end of, uh, me and uh, uh, child number uh, two needed to go and get a COVID test in Stirling, so we were driving. And uh, I made her listen to the podcast, which surprisingly she quite liked. But uh, there was a bit where you said, what are your favourite bits about family? And she suddenly perked up. I think she was pretending to listen to something else. And she went, oh, this will be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it was okay. She was happy with my answer. And the final thing was um, I bumped into a friend of the podcast, Gillian Gunn in Aberfeldy Park. Um uh, Gillian Gunn, amazing Gillian Gunn, who's from Inverness. It says quite a few of our friends in Inverness um, l- enjoy listening to the podcast. So hello to them. And they say to Gillian, Jen's amazing. She's amazing with children. And Elaine, <laughs> not Elaine, Gillian simply says, um, yeah, it's just Jen. <laughs> Which I like the idea that um, the friends who don't know Jen so well uh, are semi, I think, putting you on a bit of a plinth in Inverness. Jen, quite I mean, well deserved, it, thoroughly deserved. Interestingly, no, also, I think this is not the first time that feedback from this podcast has highlighted Jen's contribution. It always highlights Jen's contribution. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's definitely up in the in the points. The darling, there. yeah, she is the darling of the listeners. Uh, excellent. Well, thank you for those those pieces of housekeeping. I promise I will go and find about Levitical laws um, or current Levitical situation. Oh, yeah. I'll find out about it and be able to talk about it at length. You'll know what in it meantime, is first. Then I'll know going... what it is. That'll, that'll be a starting point. So in the meantime, though, it is time for Glover's Off. Glover's Off this week is about a book called Humankind, which I've been reading. It's a huge tome. It's by a, a Dutch author called Rutger Bregman, who's surprisingly young when I saw his picture on the back cover. I thought, oh, he's a young chap and he's early 30s with a nice beard and his basic thesis is we have over exaggerated how terrible people are and he says the reason that we do this is because news likes to focus on the bad things so a a classic example of this he will say will be the aftermath of hurricane katrina when news organizations focused on the fact that there had been looting that 
lots of people were gathered together in a sports stadium and all the stories were about how there'd actually been attacks going on inside the sports stadium. And he said, after the news organizations left, people, the researchers went in and discovered that actually people had been incredibly nice to each other. All the stories about stuff in sports stadiums had been completely made up. And also lots and lots of stories of people helping each other out. So he began to research and he said, what, what are the, the origins of this idea? It, it's called veneer theory, the idea that we have our laws but underneath. We're all savages uh, and we need our laws to keep us in check. And there are deep philosophical debates. But he says a key founding myth of this is William Golding's novel written shortly after the Second World War called Lord of the Flies, which is about a bunch of supposedly educated, civilized English public school boys get left on a desert island and within the space of a year they descend into absolute savagery three of them get killed relentlessly bullied it just becomes an, a hell and for golding this was a parable of the human story that left to ourselves we turn into savages and Bregman is dead against this. He, or he suspects this is wrong. So he went looking. Has there actually ever been any actual research to find out if what Golding wrote about was true? He did find a number of reality shows where similar things had happened. But in all of those, producers were on the sidelines, pushing people, needling people, egging people on to try and fall out with each other. Until in an Australian news archive, and he had to go really, really searching for this, he found the story of a group of Tahitian um, schoolboys who had stolen a, a fisherman's boat in the 1960s. And whilst they were on the boat, they got uh, the engine uh, stopped working. I don't think any of them knew how to use a boat. And they drifted and ended up on a desert island almost a 1,000 kilometres away and ended up being marooned there for a year. Everybody thought they were gone and lost, never to be found again, until an Australian uh, captain in, a, I think, a pleasure craft found them, got on board this island and discovered a kind of picture of civilization. The boys had um, one of the classic things that happens in William Golding's book is that they light a fire and then they fail to keep the fire lit. These boys had a rota for keeping the fire lit and always making sure it was. They built badminton courts. They even had a gymnasium with gyms in it. They ate well. They planted gardens and seeds. And Brugman's point is inherently these people are good. And when they were uh, found, they remain to this day the ones that are alive, friends with the Australian captain that found them. And anyway, all the way through the book, he goes and cites example of bits of research that say were terrible. And then he finds other bits of research that actually show that, that innately human beings are pretty good to each other. And the reason I raise this as Glover's, Glover's rant is it's really made me ask a question about my faith. I mean, I've, it's still pretty much a Calvinist. And one of the tenets of Calvinism is the total depravity of, of humanity. And yet there is so much evidence that we are good. And I, for me, I wonder if that points to the reignship of Christ, where we say that Christ, who is sovereign over all creation, brings goodness to all creation. So Glover's rant, uh, Glover's off this week, is really a bit of a question. Are we bad or are we good? Interesting. So many things to think about. I think I'd read a review of that book because I'm, I was nodding along as you were telling that story. Oh, had you? I've heard that. I've heard that. I think I'm yeah, yeah, very interesting. Also made me think about the book Factfulness by Hans Rosling. You read that? No. His premise is that we we tell um, we 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 tell the statistics to make the worst possible story. Right. Uh, so if you look at things like education, mm -hmm. uh, actually the 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 mean level of um, education people in education is actually rising. Right. But we we tend to focus on the the um, the lowest levels of things. 
It's an interesting book. Yeah, it's all about how we tell a story, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to the day when you remember what the segment's title is. That'll be really fun. It'll be the same day that you remember to look up the Levitical Law Code. Super. Right. Let's plunge into Ezra 1 to 6. Now, last time, Neil, you did a fantastic overview of the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah and the, and the prophets that we're looking at. Um, can we just remind ourselves really of, of well, let, let me ask the question, why are we stopping at chapter 6 today? We're stopping at chapter 6 because there's a major change. That's actually, uh, chapter 7 is when Ezra arrives on the story and begins to rebuild. There's also a major time gap. It's also useful, this is another thing that Gillian Gunn reminded me of, which I hadn't twigged, is a lot of people listening to this haven't read the Bible passage. They're they're relying on us to to, um, put an overview. So here goes, 597, the end of 2 Kings, is the first exile where people are taken into captivity. Um, Nebuchadnezzar installs a puppet king in terms of Jerusalem, and he rebels. And in 586, he, he says, right, that's it, I've had enough. And he carries the people off into exile. So that's 586. There's a prophecy from Jeremiah that says in 70 years, everybody's going to be restored. And what we've already debated a little bit is that the, the restoration happens through King Cyrus in the year probably 538 BC, which is an awful lot less then it's uh, just less than 50 years uh, than the 70 years. So we debated and said, is that because it's a, a, an image of a lifetime? Or I've, we've got another wee theory that we're going to put forward uh, together. Anyway, 539 uh, is the beginning of Ezra. Um, Shesh, Shesh Bazar is the prince. He's given um, the temple objects and he returns to the people in Ezra chapter 1. They then rebuild the temple. We're going to come to that. Uh, there's then a whole bunch of letters that go back and forth about whether you can or cannot rebuild the temple. Uh, but eventually the temple does get dedicated in the year 516 BC. And that, by the way, is exactly 70 years since the exile. So my little theory, which I can't find in any of the commentaries, is it's to do with the temple. That's roughly what's going on. And then Ezra appears uh, quite a few years later in the year 458, and that's the beginning of chapter 7. Yeah, so Ezra himself doesn't actually appear yeah. in the bit that we're talking about yeah. today. Um, yes, and then, and also, just a quick reminder on last time, we, we think that Esther potentially falls between chapter 6 and chapter 7. I think that's really Yeah, I think that's what we said, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And does yeah, Haggai exactly. not appear in chapter 6? Is that not why we're going on to do Yes, that? he appears at chapter yeah. 5 here. Yeah. And he, we're going to come to him, I think, next week, aren't we? Yes, in yeah, the next, next podcast. Yep. But he, he can be dated August the 29th, 520, to December the 18th, 520, 2,541 years ago. Wow. Wow. And uh, we'll talk about him next time. Great. Okay, so, uh, Jen, last time you said that you were looking forward to being more focused and, and not having to read great swathes of books. Uh, has the reality, as you've looked at these six chapters, has the reality lived up to the expectation? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I love all the details and um, even even the 1,700 donkeys uh, that travel with the people <laughs> back to Jerusalem. It's a nice wee moment. Um, and, and, and just the relevance as well, as you read a more focused part, the, the relevance for now see, it seemed to strike me more. And it's so practical. In chapter two, there's all this admin stuff and what they're taking and the plates and the donkeys and who's doing what and who went, but lots of lists. And I'm, I'm not naturally an admin person. If Gillian Gunn is listening, she'll know that. And uh, I, I would try and avoid that at all costs. 
Uh, so I'm very grateful for other people who I work with and I'm in my church family with who are excellent at administration. It is a gift, of course. During COVID, uh, we visited lots of the families who come to our messy church at home. And we were only able to do that because we had a fairly robust uh, list of who they were and where they stayed. Now, I just thought that was something we had to do in, in the past, but the, the, the importance of it, it happened when we were in lockdown. So we were able to keep in touch with each other, which really helped us, I think, know that we were part of a, of a church community. Not, it wasn't just something we went to, an, an event we were part of. And I spoke to other people who were part of Messy Churches and, and they were struggling to visit families because they, they didn't have that kind of admin. So a wee shout out to admin and and there, and when you're reading these obscure books of the Bible, you can find that kind of level of relevance that administration actually impacts ministry and God's work. That, I think that's really interesting because we'll come back to the 70 years thing again, but I, I read something this week that talked about, actually, it doesn't really matter if it's exactly 70 years or not. It could be 69, it could be 71. It doesn't really matter. The point is that it's a generation. And so a, a generation is, is away in exile. Um but it, it makes me think how quickly we lose practices and ways of being and traditions. Mm-hmm. And I suppose there's a relevance there, isn't there, when we're, we're thinking about our, our current reality? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The relationship with what's gone before and the relationship with what comes back. So a lot of things are lost. Firstly, a lot of the names are different. I don't recognize any of mm-hmm. these names. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the names there right at the start, there's a big Vi who's mentioned in, and people point out that's, that's a Persian name. You know, people have, mm-hmm. have taken on Persia. This is an echo, I think, of the, the book of Numbers because there's a whole lot of stuff that echoes Exodus. So the fact that the, they leave with all the jewels and possessions of the people behind, that's a total echo of Exodus coming back. Um, but this time the names are different. Uh, there is a census, just like there was with Exodus and Numbers, but the numbers are much reduced than they were. So it's fragile. It's reduced. You're bearing the names, but there's also an attempt to recover. So the minute that the people get back, chapter 2, verse 68, as soon as they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families made free will offerings for the house. So there's fragility there are still numbers by the the numbers coming back are way more. Forty two thousand uh, are named plus seven thousand servants plus two hundred singers. The singers get a separate mention. It's a good <laughs> choir, and that's way more than the number who left. So mm-hmm. either they flourished in the land, they've they've grown significantly, or maybe lots of people have decided to associate with them. Anyway, you come back forty two thousand, but it's way less than the original Exodus. So it's. It's bigger than one thing, but it's much less than, than another thing. It's fragile, it's shaped by exile, but immediately they go to the house of the God to try and reclaim something of what was in the land. So one of the things that you've got here is this tension between um, your identity is shaped by your present circumstances, but also rooted in a historical reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting around you touched on that there the the place of worship in all of this mm. isn't isn't there and we've we've kind of subtitled today's episode rebuilding worship and and that seems to be the priority yeah. doesn't it yeah it's a, um, there's a a book by james smith um in which he argues that the the key idea of what it is to be human is to worship he, in his book he calls us homo liturgicus 
Um, interestingly enough, uh, the the worship is one of the very few things that only humans, at least observably, do. Because um, animals, all animals talk, other animals use tools, but worshiping a god, um, Psalm 148 with the great sea creatures would have something to say about this. But for anthropologists, worship is one of the uniquely human characteristics. And it's interesting, isn't it, that that's what people do, first of all. It's a good reminder for me in church, again, that we talk about programs and we talk about schemes, but fundamentally what we're about mm-hmm. is that moment where we come into the presence of God and acknowledge the the worship of God. And it, that, it is quite significant, isn't it? It's not the natural thing to do if you were setting off hmm. to rebuild a city and a temple, would to have a planning meeting, set hmm. the strategy, give out the jobs, who's doing what, when are you having a day off? Um, it, it wouldn't be <laughs> to to worship so it is a really, it's a really important reminder. And in fact, through COVID, I'm, I often thought, you know, we, we are still the church because we are still a worshipping people. That is the key thing. Yeah. It's not the other stuff. It's because we're worshipping people. Although I did notice in chapter two that they, they did settle in their homes first. So it wasn't like, like just throw your stuff and throw your stuff down there. Let's go and do some uh, mm-hmm. worshipping, uh, sacrificing. There was a settling in period. So there was a, to be worshipful doesn't mean we're not being practical as well. And that, and that comes through these chapters and other bits, doesn't it? There's, there's a couple of moments where the priests are, are blowing their trumpets in worship and people are building. There's another moment when it says the prophets and the builders are together. And there's that lovely sense of working and doing things and worshipping are a, a beautiful blend. It's not that, you know, the sacred, there's no sacred, there is a sacred secular divide in some ways, but in other ways, not at all. They're happening yeah. together. And does that not play into into what you just said about the the, the homes and the temple? Mm. That that yes, they settled in the homes first before before they began the building work. But but was there not something about the whole community is working towards worship, and that means settling in homes. It means building community. It means creating the space for for being able to do that. Maybe. Yeah, one one of the big influences for me has been the the Iona community and and going to the Abbey in Iona, and what what always strikes me is that that the community's roots in George MacLeod were about building the Abbey. That was his big thing. We shall be rebuild, but at the heart of it was worship. And George MacLeod himself was an inspirational leader of of worship, and one of the the symbols of that is every morning. In morning worship in Iona Abbey, you do not sit down after the closing responses. You you stay standing and then you walk to your work to symbolize the fact that the two are in continuity with each other. And and it also what you've just said a moment ago, Jane, about worship and not having strategy meetings. I think most of us and perhaps many of you, many people who are listening, are aware that we're going to lots of church renewal meetings. And I I I sponsor those and we have strategies and we have post-it. Well, maybe we don't have post-it notes. Maybe COVID has seen the demise of the post-it note, but it's been replaced by the Zoom chat. But but we have all these strategies and we break them down and we set ourselves outcomes. And it's, it's by the way, that is 100% American management theory that, yeah. that, that can be rooted in that place. But um, I don't think the reason, this for me, the fundamental 
issue with the church in Scotland is that too often, it's got nothing to do with having the wrong programs and the wrong strategy. It's too often that the experience of worship is boring, mm -hmm. dull, and, and in an existential sense. I'm not saying it doesn't have spangly enough music or graphics or whatever. I mean, boring in the sense that it disconnects with, with the experience of God and the experience of life. And I, I would argue that fundamentally our call for the renewal of the Church of Scotland is our call for renewal of worship. And I mean, I, I've obviously I belong to the Church of Scotland, but I'm meaning the whole church in Scotland. That mm. sense that we move into the place of God and there is an awe of God and that there is a word spoken which speaks to the very deepest realities of who we are. Why do you think it is? And I, 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 I'm not just asking this out of the blue. I mean, I think it does connect to this. It connects to how people rediscover the old ways of, of doing things. But why do you think it is that, that our experience of worship within church is boring? Because my experience of worship within church is not boring, I don't think. There's there's a theme in Ezra, isn't there? You can correct me, Neil, you will. Of of a shift to community being being the place of worship. So it's not just about the the priest leading it, but the people gathering together to worship. And I'm just wondering when you ask that question, Fiona, is is part of where are the rich moments in the in our worship? And as I think about it, I think I'm sure it is when I know that I'm with other people in that worship. In moments like a baptism, when you're brought together to make those promises together, or we share bread and wine as we remember what Jesus has done for us that is a, a community event and do we often make worship individual and as we returned mm -hmm. to church physical I don't know two physical church buildings that we were even more individual because we were sitting apart and you know just in our households and and that's changing we still have our masks on but there's more of a community so is is what's happening in Ezra here this community worship something we need to learn from another thing that struck me was that as they left to go back to jerusalem not everybody went there was people who stayed behind mm -hmm. but they were still involved in the process they, they gave money they gave food everybody helped each other I, I don't know what that's going to teach us about worship but we're not in it alone it's not church isn't something we go to i mean how often has this been said church isn't something we go to it's a, it's a people we belong to and, and if we refocus yeah. on that, maybe our worship will be more meaningful because we're doing it together. But that'll need, and in some ways it needs creative thinking, but other ways it's just, it's just the things we enjoy as people being together. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really, I think there's a couple of things there for me as, as you're speaking. What, one is as somebody who lives in a single household, yeah. there was a real delight in going back into a space, even though I was two meters apart and wearing a mask and all the rest of it. It was a real delight in being in the same space with brothers, brothers and sisters, really. So, so you know, I, th I think it, I think it works both ways. I think, I think there is a still a frustration on things, but for, for, I think for some people, the isolation of the last 18 months has actually awakened that sense of actually, I do have a longing to meet with people week by week. Maybe I'm just 
peculiar that way I don't know but I, I think there is something in that but but I, I think the other thing that's interesting what you're saying is is I think as we read through Nehemiah and we we, we kind of connect all these books up the prophets up and so on we will see this interconnection because there, there, there's there's the people who stayed and there's there's communication going back and forward there's there's different people hearing reports of things I think that's something that reading through um these books more seriously I've become aware of you know this so Nehemiah and Ezra didn't just hang out together and Ezra doesn't just appear in Ezra chapter one but you know there's communication within that within the empire isn't there amongst God's people and I suppose there's a a, a prefiguring isn't there of, of what church is and church globally is uh, for us post-resurrection mm-hmm. yeah the, the, I'm just coming back to the the you know the worship dull thing and you saying, you know, my experience of church is not that. And to be fair, I think potentially your church, and I know, but I've never been to your church, but I would imagine it is, it would be a place where I would feel inspired. They, a couple of things spring to mind. One is I remember being involved in an advertising campaign for the Church of Scotland, and we met with the ad agency. And the guy who was heading up the ad agency, you know, was very enthusiastic to help us, but he had been to a boarding school in, in Scotland and he remembered that in his particular boarding school, they ought to wear their kilts and the uniform. They marched along to church and, and went back. And he said, it was easily the most boring hour of my week. And, and that, that is lodged in the cultural memory of, of, many, mm-hmm. of many people. And I try hard to make worship engaging, but my children would still say that they do not engage with the, the worship of, of our place. Funnily enough, they enjoy me as a speaker when I go to camps, but they, they don't connect with it in the church space and I'm kind of thinking well it's still me I think there's something about the, what Jen's been saying about the community ownership of it um, I, I'm always amazed that we we had a, a thing in Canvas Lang where we had a thing called Church Unplugged which was run by adults many of them parents trying to get their children involved in church and it involved many of the adults on guitars and so on singing kind of worship, contemporary worship music Young people did not go to it. The only way we mm-hmm. could get folk to go to it is if we promised we'd take them to McDonald's afterwards. The The young people themselves then came to us and said, we'd like to run our own thing. And they called it Church Unplugged. And it was genuine. Well, it was facilitated by a very good youth worker, Alison. But um, it was theirs. And pretty much it resembled a classic Sunday morning service, you know, the, the old hymn sandwich, you know, of... Um, uh, they had a, three talks, each were called Bite Size Bible. They did the prayers, they did the reading, but it was theirs. And I and, and that really did energize and engage people. And it's going back to the thing that Jane was saying a minute ago, when, when worship feels to people like it belongs to them as an expression of their lives and their own understanding of yeah. faith and their voices are heard, then it engages with people and ceases to be boring. Uh, yeah, lots of places we could probably take that, but let, let's dig in a bit to, to chapter 3 and verses 11 through to 13. Because before we started recording, Neil, I think you said to me that uh, you think this is the, the kind of pivotal moment. And and in verse 13, so we've, we've got everybody gathered together, worshipping together, but there's this, um, some people are celebrating the fact that the temple is there. Some people, those who remember the old temple, are, are lamenting and weeping because this is not a patch on what used to be Um, and in verse 13 it says no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away what's going on i think this is i think this is the key moment in these six chapters in fact i think this moment is the great gift of these chapters 
as an expression of 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 worship but also of lament and both are authentic and we were discussing this off air because i i think too often we shut down leaders of the church shut down that that voice we say we can't stay in the past we've got to look forward you know lots of stuff in my own denominational debates frequently people say we can't be looking back we need to look forward and i want to say well where are we actually properly looking back i think of one of the congregations i'm involved in at the moment where some of the meetings are really painful and really tense and i've actually begun to dread them and as i've begun to think about it more i think that what's going on is a sense of loss but it's a, a sense of loss which possibly as someone who leads in that church i haven't created the right space for and therefore it's showing up in more poisonous or toxic ways particularly mm-hmm. in meetings where people really snipe at each other or, or people trying mm-hmm. to do do things What's interesting is that the weeping and the joy mm-hmm. both get turned up to 11 on the amplifier <laughs> here. Both are, and neither are shouted down and they are not seen to be in contradiction to each other. They are both seen. The voice which laments the fact that the present is but a pale shadow of the past, that's allowed to speak. And the voice which celebrates that at least we're here, we've got mm-hmm. here, that voice is allowed to speak. And I think there's something very, very true about true worship, allowing voices which are in tension to each other to be spoken at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's about creating a space for the voice to be heard, to 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 feel that your voice is yeah, heard. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking, I mean, well, Jen, do you want to, I, I'd be really interested in, in, in Jen's bit in this, because I think Jen's had some you had a, you had a different view on this, didn't you? You think too often we we do speak about the past. No, I think that was me. Was that you that said that? Yeah, yeah. I, I I think sometimes the voices of the past can hold us back uh-huh. um, because the voices of the past don't they don't relate r- properly back to the traditions and the good, yeah. but they relate back to a kind of pseudo tradition. Yeah, so yeah. so I recognise it in myself. Uh-huh. You know, I, I find myself becoming that person who's a bit grumbly about song lyrics in worship, for yeah, example. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, we should go back to the songs that I was singing when I was 25 yeah. because, but I know there were people at 50 mm. when I was 25 who would be saying the same things. And actually, so it is a pseudo tradition. Whereas I, I'm, I think the genuine voices of, of lament for what has passed, the, the genuine voices that, are, are about something that is real. I, you know, we we probably don't hear them enough. But but Jen, you you did you had a story about a facilitation of that. Yes, I used to work for a presbytery of the Church of Scotland. I, I don't want this podcast to become about the Church of Scotland, uh, but hopefully these stories are relevant for all all churches. I went to the. I was invited to the Kirk session to talk about how we could how communion needed to be more intergenerational and different because we were now in a different context, a smaller group of worshippers, um, less children, and how we could do that all together so communion would remain meaningful and, and still be that place where we stop and we share a meal to get together as Jesus commanded us to and remember his love for us through the cross. And working with the minister we created a space where people could tell their stories of what communion had meant for them. And there was this really beautiful moment. The woman wasn't crying physically, but you could sense the emotion in her voice as she spoke about 
being a younger adult and sitting in a church and hearing the footsteps of the elders as they marched down the aisle behind her, carrying the elements to lay on the communion table. And she told that story and how, how that was such a powerful physical experience of, of sharing communion. But then she went on to say, however, I, I do know we can't do it that way anymore and it, it isn't working. However, I, I, so I want to discover how we can still share communion together in a way that is meaningful for everybody. And we, went, we then went on and had a session meeting with the, all the children present to talk about it more and, um, and had, well, let's say creative communions, but communion is creative in itself. It's a meal together for God's people. So I think, I think that's a, probably a practical story of what Neil's describing of that need to weep and remember, but move on. But the thing that in that story that stays the same is the ancient tradition that Jesus asked us to do. And that is so true in Ezra that they're having the feast of uh, the festival of booths. They're having the, the other feasts that last for seven days. They're Passover. Doing the same sac- yeah, the Passover that the sacrifices that they've done for generations and generations, those things are the same, but it's a different context. It's a different culture. And so God's word, it, the words of God from the law are still being read. The celebrations are still happening. Worship is still happening, but it's it's different. The temple's different. But I was thinking as well. Yes, because yes, so, so are you questioning then the, the crying? I, I wasn't questioning the crying, but are we assuming that they're crying because the temple isn't the same as the old temple, which I think it is. It, it, it was smaller, wasn't it? It was different. Or are they crying because they remember the past, they remember the people that aren't here anymore, they remember the way things were? And and I don't know. We, we don't know what they're crying for. We're, we're maybe assuming that they're saying, oh, this temple, this new temple's not as good. Maybe they're, they're crying because they have lived a long life and they're remembering and, and they are in the, they're in the community they're with the people who are joyful and they have tears, but they're also part of the new thing, which is rooted in the old thing. Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And it's interesting just thinking about how people do that. So so that that thing of creating space. I, I was reflecting on um, St. Rollock's Church in Glasgow, which uh, has been knocked down and a new building has been has been built as part of a redevelopment of, of the site hill area. And uh, Gardner and Gardner, so Peter and Heidi Gardner did a, a beautiful um, exhibit there in the new building, which was a triptych that they had made of a uh, things, things, the thinginess of things <laughs> from the old business building. So there were, you know, there were there were some of the hymn numbers from the hymn boards, and there were, uh, I think there was a bit of a chair, there was a bit of an orange plastic chair that had been in the old chair. So it was, you know, really, really thingy things actually. Uh, but they had made something very beautiful, beautiful of it, and uh, had a, an ex- exhibition. I'm not sure what's happened to that triptych since, actually. But part of that was about collecting the memories and collecting the stories, and and enabling people to have something to come and look at and reflect on. So I'm, I'm quite intrigued about the place of creativity and and art in doing that. And even Neil, what you talked about with with Iona, I think that's interesting, isn't it? It's a it's a physical positioning of I'm choosing not to sit because. That that's a, a reflection of something, of a truth that I want to live out. That my worship and my work are connected. I, I'm really I'm I'm really glad you brought this up, Neil, because it's making me think of lots of things in my past. It, it, 
within a church community and maybe, maybe I've just said, oh, that wasn't good and I don't want to replicate that, but that is never true. Interestingly, I was in, in the church I go to, we've had a major renovation, but there's one hall that remains the same. <laughs> like it has never changed over the generations. But I went to that hall on Monday night because I'm part of a Highland Hustle class. There's a story. Oh, yeah, I was going to so ask like, you about that. I saw it, it was on like, Facebook. It's exercise and Highland dancing. It's great. <laughs> anyway, we're now back in person and we're in this hall in my church building that has never changed. I've got so many memories. Some of them are truly awful. But in some of the things that I, I struggle with in my memory, there is good things. So here's an example. I was in a a junior choir from eight years old to 16 years old. And we met in this hall every Sunday afternoon. Now, there was, you were like, you weren't allowed to turn around. You were told to face the front. You had to learn all your words off by heart. It was quite militaristic, really. And we, we were pushed to perform and perform and perform. We did, and we won all these competitions, and we did solo competitions. And, oh, my goodness. And so there's lots of memories. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I would just never treat children like that. But, however... From that experience, I I know so many ancient hymns off by heart. And some of the hardest moments in my life, those words of those hymns have been in my head. And I've known God with me because I was made to remember those words. So in a memory that had some things that I would we wouldn't do now, we, we wouldn't fit our culture, God used, and, and those things remain the same, those words remain the same, those truths about God remained the same. And that's back to Ezra, isn't it? Everything has changed. The culture is different. The people are different. But God and worshipping him, the ancient things remain the same. I, I um, Before we get to a close on this and just picking up that link that you've made of the, of the so-called spiritual with the so-called secular that they, they blend into one, one of the things I love about this book is, firstly, it's a book about data. So it's a book about GDPR, it's a book about databases, <laughs> spreadsheets, lists of names and numbers. Secondly, it's a book about buildings, in my context, the fabric committee, construction, uh, these things matter. And then thirdly, it's a book, a big shout out to the librarians and the archivists, because it's a book about people finding letters and documents and decrees, and that's what saves the day. So the, the heroes of this are the librarians and the archivists, and particular ex, Ezra chapter 6, verse 2, Ekbatana, an archivist, finds a letter with the decree of Cyrus that tells the people that they are allowed to rebuild. And this goes to Darius. By the way, I'd like to think that Darius has got Daniel whispering in his ear at this point, just <laughs> telling him to remember the Jews. And he, he then says, you can build. This is the conclusion of chapter 6. The official view from King Darius is after all these letters have gone back and forth, you can rebuild. And of course, you can't help but escape the sense that, that God is in the numbers and God is in the data and God is in the building and God is in the retrieval of the archives. Absolutely. Fantastic. Great. Well, we are going to round off this this bit at this point. Um, I'm about to ask you what your takeaways are. I'm being quite kind and giving you advance warning of things today, really. Uh, mine, mine would be. I, I've been thinking about. I, I think there's, there's a, there's something in the present moment of helping communities of God's people to, to find ways to, to do that lament and celebration together. So I'm gonna go away and have a think about that and maybe how foolproof 
does uh, a bit of that to help people. So that's my takeaway. Anyone else? I think my takeaway is that God is sovereign in the long run. My takeaway, that, that whole conversation with Neil there about, um, and, and if you course yourself, Fiona, um, about memory and the things in the past that we've had to leave behind. I think I'll do some more thinking on that and remember back to how things were and the things in them that we do need to leave behind. But maybe there's some things in them that should be remembered and and maybe they'll they will look different for our cultural context but they remain the same i'm going to do some more thinking on that super excellent well that has been a very interesting conversation jen have you got a gem for us i do and it's very much connected with what we've been talking about and i'd thought about this before today which is great and our conversation has just developed it even more it is all about the sense, particularly in youth ministry and children's ministry, and now we're intergenerational ministry, that things have hugely changed. And in our last podcast, Neil mentioned a, a couple he'd been speaking to who had remembered in the 1960s of having thousands of people in their, in their Sunday school, as it was. And I do have quite a long memory now, being my age. Um, and I was part of a, sun, of a Sunday school, if, if you want to use that which it was called at the time in the 1970s, which would have hundreds and hundreds of people in it. The very sad thing is that um, very, very few of my generation would now call themselves Christians or, or be part of a church community. So we, this is a very relevant situation that we are very aware in our churches that we have far less young people and children that we connect with compared to the past. And what do we do about that? And... Again, what we've talked about today, that COVID has moved that theme faster. And, and here we are with fewer children, fewer young people. How do we minister? And, and on top of that, our older generation, who may well have been able to contribute and support our young people and children, have now, after two years nearly, they're not able to do that as well. So we have less people able to be part of our children's and youth ministry work. And today is really, uh, my gem is really to encourage each other to keep doing the things that matter, you know, so keep talking about the Bible with young people and children, however few you have. And I know there'll be some people who say, well, I don't, I don't know any in, in our church family. Well, just keep doing that with the people that are there, but, and the worship and, and the ancient things, sharing communion together, do these all together with the ones that you have. M Mother Teresa said, you know, how, somebody asked her, how do, how do you make a difference? They said, well, you care for the person in front of you. And it's kind of similar in this situation. You have to love and care and continue to share the Bible and Jesus' love with the children and young people know. And so for me, I remember not that long ago in the church I'm part of, eight years ago, we had 40, 50 teenagers on a Sunday night. Now we have eight. Now there are eight or 10. Now there is part of me that could, my, my sadness about that, and that is right for me to recognise that sadness, could hinder me loving and caring these particular young people yeah. this generation and the work we do with them and actually there's lots of opportunities because there's less of us and we have i think we actually have far more meaningful conversations and they can be part of things much more so there's recognizing the sadness but encouragement to keep on going with the young people and children that you do know and and working out how it's different but how it's also the same and now we've got our lovely email address fiora and um, i think we need to talk to each other about this you know i think we're all struggling all over the place with what was and what is 
And it'd be, I'd love to talk to people yeah. about what they're experiencing and how we can help each other and what resources there are out there to do that. But in some, And resources are good. It's what I do for Scottish Bible Society. But we need each other as well. Um, as we, just like the folk in Ezra, you know, we're working in a and living in a new context, but with the same God who who doesn't change. Brilliant. Well, and following on from that, if people want to do that, get in touch with us and start a conversation, then that's outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org or obviously through um, social media platforms. You can contact us that way. Uh, thank you so much to both of you. Next time we're going to jump away from Ezra and look at the book of Haggai, the whole book. So if you are reading along with us, then we'd encourage you to read Haggai um, before uh, listening next time. So uh Anything else that we should be looking out for as we come to Haggai? Anything in particular? Read the book. Uh, I think I'm just going to try and remember my minor prophets so I can remember how to get to it. I know it's next to Zechariah, that, that one, but uh, yeah, just see if I can remember the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Or just use the contents page. There's no shame. So in the meantime, thank you both for joining me today and uh, thank you for those of you who are listening and we'll speak to you next time. Bye.